Some of you perhaps have seen one of those makeover programmes on TV. Um, it's not a staple watch for me by any means, but I know, they're, I know they exist, I know they're on there. And they'll take someone who um, perhaps look, looks rather plain and ordinary, uh, maybe even in some cases a little unkempt, maybe a little bit rough around the edges, and they'll employ all of these uh, so-called beauty experts who will uh, do their hair and pamper them with a facial and all the rest of it, whatever's necessary, and uh, transform them, produce this uh, wonderful vision of themselves and during the entire process uh, the person who is undergoing this torture has not a clue as to what's actually going on they don't see a thing um, they know what they look like in the mirror that morning and the next time they will see themselves will be at the great reveal as the mirror is turned around and there they sit or stand in all their new glory and words that you will often hear them say, is that really me? They don't recognise themselves. What a transformation. Is that really me? Well, that's the title for the message this evening, but it's got nothing to do with having a makeover. It's actually what we really should find ourselves saying when through the word of God we see ourselves as we truly are. On Sunday evenings as we run up to Easter, we've, we're using the verses of a very well-known well -known hymn written by a man called Philip Bliss. Uh, the hymn with the first line, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. And we're using each of these verses just as a, a framework to help us unpack what it actually meant for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into this world to die for sinners. What is the gospel of Christ all about? Well, Philip Bliss in his wonderful hymn covers much of the things that we need to be considering in answer to that and we're using these verses as a, just as a guide. And in his third verse, he says this, Guilty, vile, helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a saviour. Now, guilty, Vile, that's a strong word, helpless. Is that really me? Is that really you? Can you imagine the response? Walking down Church Street in Liverpool with a big placard. You are all guilty vile, helpless. You'd probably be, you'd be doing well if you got to the end of Church Street with your placard still in one piece. Is that really me? Is Philip Bliss just exaggerating? 
or is he right? Is it true? This last week, some of you, like me, have probably been following with some interest how society has been struggling to respond to the death of Martin McGuinness. Uh, what exactly do we say? What conclusion do we come to? How do we assess him? Do we just focus on the first part of his life? He was, after all, a murderous terrorist. Or do we just point all the focus on the bit at the end where he did play a significant part in the peace process, process that came to Northern Ireland? There's no, dispu no disputing the, the part that he played. But how our society has struggled in trying to make an assessment of him. Does the good at the end of his life, if you can call it that, outweigh the bad at the beginning? Does what he achieved, if you can call it that, as part of the peace process, enable us to just brush to one side the other things? And uh, we've, well I have, I've watched with interest how uh, political commentators and those who've been asked to give an opinion have struggled to bring these two things and see if there's any way that they can be reconciled. Most people, of course, have acknowledged that these two things can't really be reconciled. Uh, how do we... But what kind of conclusion do we come to? And then, of course, there have been some voices which have been much more ardent and forthright and much less conciliatory in their tone. Uh, one such voice was Lord Tebbit. Some of you will have heard, I think, some of the things that he said. I was actually rather surprised, but pleased, to see that the BBC actually broadcast his words and didn't blot them out. I was almost expecting, oh, we're not going to let this man say this. Now, of course, for those of you who are too young to remember, which is quite a few of you, actually, um, Lord Tebbit was Norman Tebbit, as we knew him back then, and he was a minister in Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government, which in 1984 was the target for an IRA bomb. It was their party conference. They were all staying at the Grand Hotel in Brighton, and the IRA planted a bomb. And a number of people were very seriously injured. And Lord Tebbit was a member of that government. He was injured, and his wife was even more seriously injured. And, of course, uh, his wife remains paralysed to this day. Lord Tebbit concluded his words like this. I hope he is parked in a particularly hot and unpleasant corner of hell for the rest of eternity. Now, some might say that shows a lack of forgiveness. It does show a considerable understanding of the word of God, however. Because unless Martin McGuinness had a miraculous conversion where he acknowledged his sins before a holy God, 
and he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in confession and repentance of his sins. Unless he did that, Lord Tebbit's got Martin McGuinness's destination right. Because that's where everyone is heading. That's where everyone is heading. And some people might look at the likes of Martin McGuinness, and of course there are countless thousands like him in the world. Some people might look at men like that, and when they read guilty, vile, well, they're happy to think of words like that being associated with people like that. But me? I'm in a completely different bracket to people like that. I'm in a completely different league to people like that. God will look at me with completely different eyes to the way he'll view men and women like that. But, insists the hymn writer, guilty, vile, helpless, we. Not just him. We. Is he right? Is that really me? Well, let's have a think about these things. Let's consider the words of the hymn. Do they have any basis in the scriptures? Let's think about the first word. Guilty. Guilty. Guilty of what? Some famous verses in the book of Romans. Both verses numbered 23. One from the third chapter, one from the sixth. Words that you know only too well, many of you. All have sinned. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are guilty in God's eyes. The wages of sin. Now you see, if you're guilty of something, it means there's a penalty. If you're guilty of something, there's a penalty. If you find yourself in court in the UK or in any other country, if you're in court and you are guilty of something, you can expect that there will be some penalty. The judge is not going to say, yes, you are guilty, but never mind, there, there, off you go, be good, don't do it again. There's a penalty to pay of some description. The Bible says the wages of sin. There's a penalty coming. And it's death. Because you're guilty. Before God. Now this guilt, what's all this about? Well, in our morning studies in 1 John, we saw in chapter 3 that the Apostle John says this, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You've gone against God and you've gone against his law. 
you've, you're going completely contrary to the way that God would have you go. In your actions, in your thoughts, in your words, in your motives, in your affections, it's all completely against the way God would have you be. Lawless. You're guilty of not being the way God would have you be. Now, at the beginning of the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says some interesting and helpful things. Because he wants to make it clear to people that every single one of us are in this position. And there is not a single man or woman or boy or girl on the face of this planet that has any excuse for being in that position. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. They know they are wrong. They know they're guilty. They know that they're not living and thinking and acting and doing and saying the way God would have them do and act and think and say. Their conscience tells them day after day after day. Which is why he goes on towards the end of chapter 1. He says, they're being filled with all unrighteousness. And he gives a big long list of the kinds of things which give evidence to the fact that we are guilty. These are the things that people do. This is how people are. Sexual immorality and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and so on. Being violent. And in that list, just being proud. Just being proud makes you guilty. Disobedient to parents. Not much of that about, is there? Inventors of evil things. Undeserving, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving. Verse 32, they know the righteous judgment of God. They know they're guilty. That those who practice such things are deserving of death. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, you are inexcusable. Whoever you are, you're inexcusable. You're guilty before a holy God. You are in your sinfulness. The sinful nature in which you were born. It's what David was talking about. I've been born in sin. It wasn't something I fell into when I was in my late teens or early 20s. I was born that way. My very nature is to be sinful and guilty before a holy God. I'm guilty before God. Vile. Vile? I'm not vile, I'm basically good. No, you're vile. Really? Is that honestly how God looks upon me? As vile? 
Now, I would never recommend you make this your opening line if you want to speak to someone about the gospel because they're probably just going to turn off immediately you open your mouth. But at some point, these are the kinds of truths that people need to begin to comprehend and understand in order that they might come to the position that David was in. He knew that he was vile in the eyes of God. And we'll come back to that psalm shortly, but I think you can see David, if he'd had that hymn to sing, he'd have sung it with full voice and with full heart because he knew that before the stare and the gaze of a holy God of righteousness, he was a vile, guilty man. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses all the things we're so proud of all the things we puff our chests up with they're like filthy rags before a holy God we're vile in the sight of God in our sins that's our true condition. Is that really me? The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk in the opening chapter says this about God. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Sinful men and women in the eyes of a holy God so filthy are we. He can barely look upon us. On the one hand, the Bible says that we in our sin cannot possibly look upon God in the light of his holiness. And God in his holiness cannot look upon us in the depths of our sin. And we're all like an unclean thing. Romans chapter 1, at verse 24, the apostle says this, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves. Vile sinfulness in the eyes of God. And then in chapter 3 of Romans, beginning of verse 10, again, we have this uh, long list of the way God sees us as we really are. There is none righteous, not a single one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. So vile am I in my sin, I don't even seek after God. I want nothing to do with him in my sinful self, in my sinful nature. I want nothing of God. They've all turned aside, together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, who does good. not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. And so he goes on. Guilty. Vile. 
in the eyes of a holy God. Two Corinthians chapter four and verse two. Paul says there, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. Now he's talking about the position of a Christian. But we used to be mired down, embroiled in things of shame. Things of shame before God. Have you confessed before the Lord how you really are in your sins? And just to make it even worse, you're helpless. You're helpless. Not only are you guilty and vile, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing I can do about my position before God. Helpless. Are we helpless? We live in a world where, oh, we love to think we can help ourselves. Just, just give me a bit of time, a bit of encouragement. I'll sort myself out, thank you. No, helpless, says the scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 2, now, Paul, again, is talking to Christians and he's talking about how things used to be. We were dead in trespasses. Now, it, it doesn't get much more helpless than that, does it? Is there anything that is less able to help itself than a dead body? Can you think of anything? I mean, at least if you're alive, you might think there's hope. At least if I'm alive, I've got a fighting chance. At least if I'm alive, I can try something. But the Bible says you can't even try anything because you're dead in your sins. That, that's a pretty helpless position to be in. And the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man, as we are in our sinfulness, that condition that David spoke about, born in sin, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. I don't have the capacity to understand the things of God. I don't have the capacity to see the need that I'm in. That's how helpless I am. That's why people ask, is that really me? Because they just don't have the capacity to take these things on board. That's how helpless they are. Paul explains in, in 2 Corinthians 4, the, their minds have been blinded by the God of this age. So they're dead, they're blind. They're doubly helpless. They can't see. You can tell them and tell them and tell them, but they can't see it. We've seen in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, we're in death row. We're on death row. The wages of sin is death. Death row is a pretty bleak place to be, you know. Death row is a pretty helpless place to be. 
How helpless are we? Well, John, at the beginning of his Gospel, says this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. So helpless are we, that even confronted with the light of Christ, we'd rather stay in the dark, in our sins, in our sinful nature. Now the reality of those three terms, guilty, vile and helpless, can't we see that in Psalm 51 as David prays? Can't we see that this is a man acknowledging before God his guilt? Can't we see this is a man acknowledging before a holy God the vileness of his heart? Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. I've sinned against you. It's in your sight that I have done this evil. I'm guilty. Lord, I'm guilty. I'm vile. In your eyes, the Holy One, you cannot look upon me. Such is the filth of my sin. And I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do about it. Look at the plea of David. Purge me. That I might be clean. Why? Because I cannot clean myself. Wash me, Lord, wash me, that I might be whiter than snow. Why, David? Because I cannot wash myself of this sin. Create in me, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Why, David? Because I can't change my own heart. Oh, how I've tried, but I can't. It will not change. But God can clean. God can wash. God can cleanse. And God can change hearts. But David knew he could do none of this. Guilty. Vile. Helpless. Is this really me? Well, David for one said yes. Will you? Because it's only when we say yes that we can then go on to ask for the cleansing and the washing and the new heart. And how is this possible? Well, just quickly, there's a spotless lamb of atonement. There's a spotless lamb of atonement. A lamb. Well, Leviticus might not be a book that you necessarily turn to for your morning devotions, but have a read through the book of Leviticus sometimes and watch out for the word lamb. See how many times the word lamb appears as God is giving all of his instructions regarding the law that Israel must keep 
and all the different sacrifices that have to be offered for the forgiveness and atoning of a whole variety of different sins. And again and again, you will hear lamb being mentioned. Lamb was one of the main animals, not the only one by any means, but one of the main animals that gets referred to for sacrifice in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verse 7, verses 32 and 35 of chapter 4, chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 12, verse 6, chapter 14, in two places, and so on. The lamb, the most commonly recognized animal probably in sacrifice. Yes, they used bulls and they used turtle doves and they used goats. And, but the lamb, such a strong symbol of sacrifice. And of course, the lamb had to be uh, the best from the flock without blemish. And Leviticus tells us again, that it's for the atoning of sins. The atoning of sins. It talks about this in Leviticus chapter 16. In a number of places. Uh, some of the verses there are on the screen if you want to jot them down. But you, you can look them up and have a look. For the atoning of sins. The word atone means to cover. To cancel out. To annul. Atonement is what David meant when he said... Blot out my transgressions. Atone for my transgressions. Remove them. Cancel them. Blot them out. Lord, please. I can't, but you can. Blot them out. Deal with them. And it's through the sacrifice of the lambs, through the shedding of their blood, that there is atonement for sin. Sins can be blotted out and cancelled. God cannot ignore or turn a blind eye to our sins. He can't. If we are not to pay the penalty, the penalty must be paid by another. And the lamb has come. Of course, we've mentioned this before in this series, and many of you know this already, that all of those Old Testament sacrifices are just pictures for the coming sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... The, the chapters 8 and 9 and 10 of Hebrews, of course, are so special and so important to explain that all of those things were just pointing forward to Christ, not with the blood of goats in chapter 9 and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. All that blood from animal sacrifice could never truly deal with sins. But the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The spotless lamb who brings atonement from sins. We've recently been through the revelation at the end of the Bible. And the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is frequently referred to as the Lamb. John sees him in his vision as the Lamb slain in chapter 5, in chapter 7, in chapter 12, and 14 more times. 14 more times Jesus is pictured and seen as the Lamb slain for the atonement of sins. 
sins covered by the blood of the spotless lamb. Sins cancelled out by the blood of the spotless lamb. The charge against sinners is removed because the charge has fallen on Christ. And on account of Jesus being the lamb of atonement, you may pray as David prayed for mercy, for forgiveness, that your transgressions might be removed from you. And you may pray for washing and for cleansing in acknowledgement and confession of your sins. You can pray that God would renew in you a clean heart. And he will. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender. Don't be thinking that's someone else further down the line. That's me. That's you. In God's eyes, the vilest offender who truly believes, here's the gospel, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Guilty, vile and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? It can. Hallelujah. What a saviour. We're going to sing a hymn as we close.